Our scripture reading will be in Genesis chapter 3. We, consider our, we continue our study of the book of Genesis. Last time we considered the fall, and this time we will continue that study. So we'll read Genesis 3, and we'll read the entire chapter. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim, and the flaming sword, 
which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So far the reading then of the scripture this evening. Dear friends, it's a, a, a reality in life that we have to deal with other people. That's certainly not anything earth-shaking or new to you, but we know in our lives that we constantly come into contact with other people. And not only that we come into contact with other people, but we come into contact with people who are not believers in Christ. Now the first Christians had the same situation. The first Christians, from the very earliest times of the Bible, they came into contact with people who were not Christians, who were not believers in God. And how are we to understand that relationship? How are we to approach that relationship? And how are we to do it in a way that is biblical and that honors God? And I believe that our text tonight gives us a a fundamental principle of our life in society, of our life in in relationship to others. And our text this evening is Genesis 3 and verse 15. A very common text, very well known. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is our text this evening. And it's the next step, isn't it? We considered last time the fall into sin. We considered how God found Adam and discovered to him and to his wife their guilt. But in today's sermon, this evening's sermon, we have the result. We have the pronunciation of God upon what his people, what his created uh, man, his created woman, what they've come to in their life. And you know how Adam immediately blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. And so now God begins with the serpent. And so in Genesis uh, 3 and verse 14, Genesis 3 and verse 14, God says, Cursed are you more than all cattle. And this is the curse then that comes upon the serpent. Part of that curse then is our text, verse 15. And I will put enmity. And that's important tonight that you remember that the text that we're considering is part of this curse that God placed on the serpent. Now, I'm not going to preach on this this evening, that'll be later, but in verse 16 comes the curse on the woman, right? which is largely dealing with pain in childbirth. And then in verse 17 comes the curse on Adam, which is largely pain in terms of uh, bringing food from the earth. So we want to return then to the curse that comes upon the serpent. Now in the first place, when people read the scriptures, they will interpret this text in the purely natural way. You know those stories, right? The just so stories, right? You all know those, right? How did the bear get such a short tail? And, and right, all these things. Uh, and, and so this is just one of those stories. Why does the serpent crawl on the ground? Well, here's the just so story from the Bible. This is, this is why serpents crawl on the ground. Well, the, the text that we have tonight uh, would, would certainly go that far, right? It says, uh, on your belly you will go, which seems to imply that serpents didn't go on their belly before. And again, it, there's no point in speculating what the serpents did before. But if you get to verse 15, you'll notice that 
there's enmity, enmity placed between Eve and the serpent. So again, that could, con, cons, that could still be consistent with one of those just-so stories, right? That's why people hate snakes so much, right? It seems like everybody hates snakes. Very few people like snakes. But then the text goes on and it talks about, and between your seed, right, that is your descendants, and her descendants, her seed. Now that seems to bring us out of the realm of a, a just-so story, right? And into something much deeper and much wider. And so that's why we reject, of course, that purely natural understanding. And of course we have the rest of the scripture as well, which teaches us that this is the beginning of redemption. This verse right here gives us the first glimmer. You see, my friends, the Bible could have ended right here. The Bible could have ended right there. And God cast them all into eternal condemnation. Period. End of the book. And I trust, my friends, that we we acknowledge that that would be just. That would be justice. That would be fairness, right? God gave his people. Remember, we, we talked at length about the beautiful garden, how God gave them every possible advantage. And scripture repeatedly emphasizes, right, when, whenever there was a deficiency, Adam was alone, so God gave him a wife. He needed food, so God provided all these trees. Everything God provides for his people. But it doesn't end there. And in the curse on the serpent, we find this first glimmer that there's a wider, bigger plan here. That there's a plan of redemption. Now, from the rest of the scripture, we know that, of course, there's a plan of redemption because we know that began in eternity past. In eternity past, we know that God had a decree to save a people and that he covenanted with the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ would come to the earth, become a man, and die for those people and save them. But this is now the first glimmer, you might say, in the history of the Bible, you might say, on planet earth, that there is such a plan. And so Adam and Eve now hear this. And they hear that little glimmer of hope. And for us too, this is such a highly prized text, isn't it? Right? You, you'll undoubtedly remember that uh, people will use the term the proto-evangelium. Right? Which is just a fancy word. The first gospel. Proto-first-evangelium gospel. It is the first gospel. The first ray of hope that God's not finished with his fallen creatures. And that's why this text is so precious to us. This is the beginning of redemption. Now, when we read this text, we notice, and I'm still under the, uh, point one here, the biblical understanding. We notice, my friends, that this first gospel, this first glimmer of hope, is, pl- is put this way in this text, right? That God will put enmity. And when you read that word enmity, you have to think hostility, opposition, if, if, if you're at enmity with someone, there's no friendship there. There's no love. Where there's enmity, there is hatred, there is opposition, there is war. And now this first glimmer of hope, this first ray of light that we're given, is that God says, here is the, here is the Eve, here is all, Eve and all her descendants. Here is the serpent and all his descendants. And now God says, between them, I'm going to insert enmity. I am going to place this enmity, this hatred, this opposition between the two. And my friends, don't lose the point now. That is God's work of salvation that he's doing. This is the first glimmer of redemption, that God has a plan of salvation for his people. 
And how does he do that? He puts this opposition between the two sides. Now think about what had happened before. Before, the serpent had been in the tree. He had been speaking to Eve. And Eve listened. Remember we talked about this. Remember the T, the R, the A, and the P. Trap, right? The temptation, the rationalizing, the action, and the pain. She heard. She listened. She considered. And we asked ourselves in that sermon, you'll remember, why didn't Eve recoil in horror when the serpent said, you shall surely not die? There wasn't so much enmity between the two. There was a little bit of listening, a little bit of credence that she put in the word of the serpent. She listened. But now God says, I'm going to work salvation. And the first thing I'm going to do is I am going to plant enmity. There is going to be this opposition, this hatred between the serpent and all those who are in him and between Eve and all those who come from her. This is God's act of redemption. God is working now to retake his kingdom. You might say the devil has got his, he, he's made an entrance into his perfect creation. He's won the first battle. But now God comes and he's going to retake his kingdom. He's going to reestablish his kingdom. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to place enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is an act of mercy, dear friends. I know we don't think of enmity that way, but this is an act of mercy that God comes and puts that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, my friends, that's the teaching of our text, that God saves his people by bringing enmity, and he makes that promise that the seed of the woman shall bruise, and notice it's put in the singular, he shall bruise you on the head. Already a premonition, right, that there is a man coming, a second Adam coming. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, my friends, that's the teaching of the text. And I'm going to move already into the, into the points of application as we think about this teaching. Because this, as I said, is a fundamental teaching that guides us in our living of the Christian life, especially in our understanding of this world in which we live. Christians and culture. And especially now, I'm every, every person, every group of people has culture, right? Every group of people has culture. But now I'm specifically thinking of the culture of those who are not Christians, of those who are unbelieving, who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are all these cultures, right? And, and we, we come into contact with them every day. Christians and culture, and especially Christians and non-Christian culture. And this text teaches us a fundamental principle of how we're to approach this. Now, first of all, let's be clear on what separates us. Remember the teaching of the Apostle Paul last week when Paul said the teaching, or the, the, the Lord's Supper is meant to bring us together, right? And all these distinctions of, of different races and ethnicities of people, all the differences between rich and poor vanish. They go away before, the, before Christ and especially at the Lord's Supper. And the same thing we have before us this evening. All those are not distinctions that separate us. Wealth and poverty, race and ethnicity, 
different languages, different tribes of people. I'm amazed when I uh, listen to biographies of, of great Christians from Africa, how much they have to struggle with this tribal identity. I'm a member of this tribe and you're a member of that tribe and we have nothing to do with you. None of those things separate us. Believing in the gospel erases all those distinctions, at least in terms of, what, of when we stand before Christ. But there is something that separates us then, isn't it? And that is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This, my dear friends, is the grand separation that runs between every single person upon the globe. Every person on this globe is either a descendant of Eve, and now that's to be understood as the seed of the woman in a spiritual way, that they are those who have believed in Christ and who have observed this enmity that is between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And they take their stand with the seed of the woman. And of course, ultimately, the seed of the woman is the seed of all those who are in Christ, in that second Adam. So the seed of the woman simply becomes a synonym then for Christians, for those who fear the Lord. And the seed of the serpent is all those who are in opposition to the seed of the woman. And my friends, God has placed enmity between those two. Now this brings all sorts of, of, of difficult questions, doesn't it? Because now we, we, we ask ourselves, so how do we approach the, the culture of non-Christian people all around us? Uh, we, we come in contact with it every day, don't we? We, in a sense, have, we, we follow the norms of our culture in so many respects. The clothing that we wear, right? The, in, in our jobs that we, that we perform week after week. And in the, in, the, in the civil government that we submit to every day of our lives. This is all culture, and most of it is, is non-Christian, isn't it? And so this principle then that we have placed at the foundation of our approach to culture then is point number three there, the antithesis. And this antithesis is what I've explained to you. That there is enmity placed between these two groups of people, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There are two forces, you might say two streams of people in this world. Now of course it's it's difficult in one sense to persuade people of this, right? Because we're friendly with so many different kinds of people, right? We certainly don't see or experience this enmity on a daily basis. And yet you have to see society, my friends, with the eyes, that, the glasses, you might say, that Scripture gives us. And Scripture teaches us that there is this antithesis, this enmity that exists between these two groups. James says in chapter 4, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Do you hear that? This is the teaching of Scripture. Friendship with the world, and when you hear the word world, you think the seed of the serpent. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That is simply Genesis 3, verse 15. Now, as we approach culture, as we approach non-Christian people in our world, we have this, fundamental truth in the back of our minds. That there is an enmity that God has placed between the two. 
And when that line begins to blur, and when there begins to be a friendship between the two, then we go right back to Genesis 3, where the woman began to listen. You shall not surely die, says the serpent. Now you've heard, and young people, you've heard this as well, the term worldly. What does it mean to be worldly? Well, again, James has already taught us that world here is a synonym with the seed of the serpent. To be worldly, that means simply to blur the lines between this antithesis. That means to begin to adopt the thinking and the lifestyle of the other side. May I call it that this evening? Of the other side. The world. Worldliness is just this. Friendship with the world. And so in our life as Christians on this earth, we have to observe and always take into consideration this antithesis. And this has brought considerable a disagreement amongst Christian churches. And so there have been different responses to the way we should understand non-Christian culture. Now these are difficult things, isn't it, congregation? When we think about different churches and and how they respond to these issues, and we get a little critical here, and maybe that's a little uncomfortable for us, but let's try to think about this truth and to apply it not just to other churches, but also to our own church and to our own life. In light of what we are taught here in Genesis 3.15. So the first response is the easiest response. Which is embrace culture. And I'm just going to say culture tonight. And by that of course I mean non-Christian culture. Embrace it. This is the first response that many have. And so in such churches you will find that the church begins to look very much like the world. When the Super Bowl is, is, comes around, these churches will put up a screen and they'll watch the Super Bowl in the church and they will embrace the culture. Now, a football game in and of itself is quite a, a neutral thing, even a quite a beneficial thing, isn't it? And yet in the culture, and what we expect from Genesis 3.15 is that something that in and of itself is, is neutral and even positive will become something very worldly. It'll, it'll begin to blur that line between the world and the church. And so we're not surprised then to see uh, the things that accompany such a thing and many other things like it. And the worship will become worldly. And the church begins to embrace this culture, forgetting this idea of the antithesis. Now, there's there's much that can be learned from these churches that certainly were not all negative, right? I mean, it's, it is amazing what some of these churches do by way of uh, outreach in their neighborhoods and all the different programs they have for the relief of the poor and for the education of people. But they do it in a way of embracing culture and becoming like the culture. And instead of drawing a clear line between the culture and the church and calling the culture to become the church, they begin to embrace it. They, the line blurs And the truth of the antithesis is lost. And so that's the problem with it. The truth of the antithesis is lost. The music. And uh, I think a couple weeks back we talked about clothing. Right? These are all issues that come up. And we begin to, uh, and we begin to, again, the, the lines begin to blur. 
I think uh, in my own uh, respect of, of uh, Calvin College in Grand Rapids, which I think in many respects has become like this. And there, there's such an uh, urgency of talking about having Christian artists and Christian musicians and Christian novelists and Christian filmmakers and Christian journalists and attorneys and teachers and scientists and business executives. Now, in one sense, this sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And yet, in order to do this, they have to adopt the culture and embrace the culture in a certain sense because otherwise you lose the uh, esteem of all the other universities and the academia around them. Again, this is a a one response to non-Christian culture, to embrace it. And pretty soon, congregation, it ends that the church becomes the world. And there's no distinction between them anymore. And that's the death of the church. So that's a danger that we need to be aware of. But the second response is to reject non-Christian culture, to reject it entirely, to pull out from it, to form your own community. You could think of, of groups like the Amish and the Hutterites and the, and, and the Mennonites. And, and here you have a very clear understanding of the antithesis, right? They certainly understand this idea of the enmity that exists between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But by pulling out and becoming communities of their own, and now you see a huge differences, right? I mean, uh, even the clothing, a rejection of technology, a rejection of modern medicine and means of medicine and things like this quickly become very apparent and they're easily seen. And so you see this rejection of non-Christian culture. And so the truth in, in this response is that they certainly recognize the antithesis. But then you ask yourselves, what about the Great Commission? Remember, this is what God has called us to do. That we're not just to be antithetical, that we're not just to reject the thinking and the practices of the non-Christian culture around us, but we are to seek, we have a mission, we have a great commission from the Lord to make disciples of all the nations. Well, how can you do that when you pull together in your own community and totally turn your back on all culture and become almost a, a, a nation to yourself? This can also be a temptation for us, can't it? That we completely turn our back on everything of the culture. This, of course, is the polar opposite of the idea that we embrace culture and just make it our own. So, even though that many of us have such great respect for these, many of these communities that exist, and, and we love them, and, and in many respects, I think I, I can say this, right, that we're even a little jealous of them in some respects, right? Uh, and yet, we have to ask ourselves, if it's enough to recognize the great uh, the, the antithesis, but then to turn away from the Great Commission. Well, that brings me then to the third response that Christians have uh, represented towards culture. And this is the idea that Christians should transform the culture. Now, of course, this is the correct answer, right? This is, this is the obvious answer. And in that sense, the third and the fourth response on your outline there don't differ in terms of the goal, that we need to transform the culture. We need to call the culture, we need to call people to come to Christ, to find their life in Him, to place themselves under the Bible, as we read from the psalm, to kiss the Son, lest He be angry, or in this translation, to show homage to the Son, to come under His Lordship, and to follow Him. So in that sense, this is certainly the true answer, to transform it. And yet here too, there's a problem. 
Here the problem is more in the method, in the method adopted. And there are people who teach that the government of the, of the nation, the government of the country, should establish the Reformed faith as the religion of the nation. These people will be called, uh, you'll, you'll, they call themselves the establishment principle. There are people who are known as theonomists, who believe that all the laws contained in the Old and New Testaments, but they would include the civil laws of the Old Testament, that this should become the Constitution of the United States. This should be enacted as the law of the land. And that unbelief or any difference to this should be rejected and such people should be subject to civil penalties. And that the, 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 the nation should enforce it, enforce obedience to the Reformed faith. Now, here we have to be a little self-aware, dear friends, because actually our own church adopted this principle and by the grace of God changed. If you would take your forms and prayers book, I'd like to show you this, uh, how this happened even in our own confessional statements. If you turn to the Belgic Confession and you turn to page 196, so that's this book in front of you, the Forms and Prayers book, it's called. And on page 196, you'll see that the Belgic Confession gives us an article 36 on the civil government. Now, if you go to the next page, to page 197 at the very top, and the whole article is worth reading, of course, but I'll just take you to the very top of page 197, where it says, they should do it, that is, the civil government should do it, in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. But then notice the footnote there. Or not the footnote, there's a little asterisk, which takes you down to this, where it says the preceding three paragraphs are a substitution for the original paragraph below, which various Reformed synods have judged to be unbiblical. And of course, the synod of the United Reformed Church also would regard this paragraph as unbiblical. But let's read this. So I'm reading that italicized text there at the very bottom of page 197. And the government's task is not limited to caring or caring for and watching over the public domain, but extends also to upholding the sacred ministry with a view to removing and destroying all idolatry and false worship of the Antichrist, to promoting the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and to furthering the preaching of the gospel everywhere, to the end that God may be honored and served by everyone as he requires in his word. So that paragraph, the synod, this all went down in, in uh, 1896 and, and some of the years thereafter. And by the way, if you're interested to see the literature on this, I'm happy to share that with you. But the synod judged that this was an unbiblical view of the civil government. In other words, to use the language that we're working with, this is not the way to transform the culture that it is not the task of the civil government to, to uphold the sacred ministry, to remove and destroy all idolatry and false worship of the Antichrist. So the synod took that language out and, and adopted a more biblical stance, right? You can think about, uh, the remember when Christ was being um, arrested, right? And Peter pulled out his sword and Jesus said, put away your sword. 
That's not how the kingdom of God is taken forward or defended. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Else my disciples would have fought for me. The kingdom of Christ is not a land or a territory with borders. It does not have an earthly agenda. There is not an a organization right, that Christ has established that now seeks to carry forth the gospel by earthly means, by means of the sword. On the contrary, the gospel is carried forth by the preaching of the gospel and by calling men to accept it and to embrace it in faith. And so we reject these, uh, these, these other uh, churches and their approach to culture. Uh, some of these churches, sometimes even in the Reformed faith, you will find churches that say that the government should enforce both tables of the Ten Commandments. Again, I find that to be an unbiblical attitude. It goes directly contrary to Jesus' teaching that his kingdom is not of this world and that the government which bears the sword is not to enforce adherence to Christianity and the Reformed faith. And one more thing on number three, this third response, is the focus in such, a, uh, in such an approach to culture tends to be very much on the externals, doesn't it? It's, a, it's an attempt to get laws changed and to get government agencies to do this and that. But Jesus also taught us, right, that unless a man be born from above, his heart needs to be changed. He cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a difference there, isn't there? And so that's what we must consider when we consider this third response. And then let's come to the fourth response. In, but not of. And I think probably many of you have heard this uh, expression before, in, but not of. And I think it really accurately captures what is the biblical approach to our life in society, in our life in this world where we many times come into contact with non-Christian culture. We must be in it, Right? So we reject the second response. We, di we disagree with that, that we should just pull out. We must be in the society, but not of it. And therefore we reject the first response. We don't embrace the ideas and the thinking and the methodologies and the practices of this world. In, but not of. We remember that the world is not our friend to bring us to God. There is that opposition, that enmity that God himself has placed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I heard a, a preacher one time say that Christians in the world are like oil in water. Right? Oil in water. The oil is in the water, but it never becomes of the water. Now, my friends, it's very important that as soon as we say that, that we emphasize that as Christians, then our duty even while we are in the world but not of the world, is to call the world, to speak to the world. We have a message for the world. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Now in doing that preaching, we do not become the world, we do not become of the world, but we preach the gospel. We're not interested so much in externals. We are interested in people's hearts. We are interested in them believing the gospel and in them coming to Christ and having their sins forgiven. Now, does this mean that Christians should never be politically active? Well, of course not. There's all kinds of activities that we can engage in that as we try to move governments to make laws that are more in keeping with Scripture, right? 
But the real focus, the real goal of the Christian is make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And of course, on the pages of the New Testament, we have the example of Jesus and all the apostles giving us examples of how that is done. In, but not of. Now, I want to make this practical this evening. And I'd like to apply this to two areas of life. The first one I'll just mention very briefly, because this is, is, quite, is quite clear to us. This is why, my friends, in, in, in Dutch Reformed churches, especially churches from, a, from the Dutch uh, uh, continental background, there's been such a push for Christian education. Because the antithesis is, is very real. And so we don't expect that if we send our children to a public school, that they would receive education that would train them up in godliness. In fact, it's the very opposite. We expect the very opposite to be the case. Now, thank God there are exceptions. There are Christian teachers in public schools, of course. But what do we expect in a public school that is committed to secularism, that is committed to no religion? And it's important that we understand this. We should be surprised when the school does do something that is in keeping with a Christian worldview. But what we expect is enmity. What we expect is opposition. And that's why wherever there was a Christian uh, a Reformed church, it seems a school was right behind it. And we celebrate that and we treasure that in our own circles as well. And I know that many of you sacrifice tremendously to, to, to send your children to a Christian school, and God bless you for that. And congregation, let's also uh, be generous also in helping those parents who struggle to support themselves or to, uh, prov- uh, to, uh, to uh, send their children to Christian schools. That's, that's not cheap. That's expensive. But it's important. And it's important because of what our text teaches us this evening, that there's enmity between the seed of the serpent. We don't give our children over to the seed of the serpent to be educated. You know, Herman Huxema was the founder of the Protestant Reformed Church. He made a statement which is maybe a little extreme, but not so much. He got in terrible trouble for this. He was preaching in the Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids. And in his prayer, he said, Lord, please forgive those parents who prostitute their children to the devil by sending them to the public schools. Now, again, I, that, that may be just a touch extreme, but still there's a truth in it, isn't there? And I, I say that just to kind of be a little edgy tonight about that, that there is enmity, and Huxima saw that. And that's why we, we, we champion our Christian schools and our Christian homeschools, because we recognize that antithesis. But one more field, because I think that we, we uh, agree on that for the most part, but I want to bring up the issue of music. This is something that we often discuss with the young people. Because young people listen to music, and they hear us listening to music, and they often wonder why they can't listen to this kind of music that is non-Christian, or perhaps that comes from a non-Christian creator of the music, a band, or a singer, whatever it may be. And by the way, this evening I specifically am talking more about music that has words to it. Okay? Because we know that non-Christians can produce good music. That is, that is obvious. But again, I ask you this evening, dear friends, to consider, 
where your music comes from. Genesis 3.15 has taught us that there's enmity between the world, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. Now what do we expect to find in music that comes from the other side, if I can say it that way? What do we expect to find? We do not expect that that music will bring us closer to God. We expect that it will do the very opposite and take us away from God. And so I ask you this evening, before God and, 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 and in your own prayer, to look at, your, look at your music list and to think about it. And I'm not saying, again, that you, you can never listen to any music except uh, music that it comes from a Christian source. But I do want you to be aware of this. And as your pastor, I, I, I urge you to be watchful and discerning in this regard. That when you look at your music, you consider the source Where did it come from? And what do you expect is the effect that it will have on you by listening to it? And young people and children, I know that it's difficult sometimes for you to to agree with your parents when they say, no, you can't listen to that kind of music. But understand and see what your parents are telling you with the glasses of Scripture. See your music through Genesis 3, verse 15. Especially because the nature of music, my friends, is such that we sing about things that we treasure the most. Right? You do not sing about your trip to the grocery store and I bought some milk and peanut butter and flour, right? Of course not. We sing about things that we treasure the most. That's why there is so much religious music out there. Well, then what do we expect from the other side? That the music from the other side is going to be music about the things that they treasure. And my friends, please hear me. The things that they treasure are not the things that we are going to treasure, usually. And so again, I I ask you in in prayer to God to think about your own music. And we hope to do this as as young people as well and as a youth group. To think about our music and where it comes from. And to be discerning. And to be suspicious of music that comes from a source that we know is not in covenant with our God. Now, my friends, the, the grand reality then of all this is there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And I hope, my friends, that doesn't lead us to hate them. Sometimes you can, you can come to that conclusion too, right? But that it leads us to pity them and to love them so much that we show them a better way, that we show them a way out of the pathway of misery and of hopelessness and of lostness into a better way. That there's a life outside of the world and all the things that they look to for joy and for happiness, that there's a better way. That there's a way in league with Christ. There's a way to come to God, to do homage to the Son. Happy, blessed, says the psalm that we read today, are all those who take refuge in Him. Well, congregation, let's, let's live our lives in this world then with this understanding of the antithesis and of the enmity that God has placed between the world and his people. And may God give us discernment to live in such a way that we glorify his name. May God grant it for his name's sake. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you, having considered something that is is, uh, deeply difficult. And yet, Lord, your word speaks to us so clearly on this this, uh, issue. And Lord, the book of Genesis
speaks on so many different issues. Uh, every verse, every line, it seems, has fundamental principles for how we live and how we understand and for our own worldview. But Lord, this evening, I pray that you would help us to see this enmity and that you would help us to live in accordance with it so that we would not be drawn away as Eve was to listen to the serpent, to give him our ear. But Lord, help us to recoil in horror from it, to turn from it, and to live our lives uh, not joined to the world, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, by knowing, understanding, and believing the word of God and living it out in our lives. Lord, give us discernment then in the area of education of our children, in the area of music, in the area of so many things, Lord, where we come into contact with culture that is not in league with our God. Lord, help us to know it and help us to live in such a way that we are as oil in water, that we are in the world, but not of it, that we have a message for the world, and that we, O Lord, would be faithful in calling them to leave a life of sin and to find their life in Christ. Lord, enable us and equip us to do this to the glory of your name. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.